Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This episode deals with homicide, suicide, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. 911, what is the address of their emergency? 1106 32nd Avenue Southwest in Mandan at RGR office. I don't think any community could ever imagine something like this happening in their backyard. A mass murderer remains on the run, but police say they don't think the public is in danger. And the number of people that were impacted by it, you know, the direct family. Daughters and sons and wives and... You know, it's, it's just not something that anybody can really comprehend. This whole process has 100% make me question humanity. I like physically just couldn't get out of my car because I was just so sad. But then also the community that was really affected by it. And so that was unique to this, this case, really. But at the end of the day, we had to believe in the justice system. I was walking, his kitchen window was about where that evergreen is, and he was staring out the window at me. My heart is with them. I do think about them every day. For most people in western North Dakota, the early morning of Monday, April 1st, 2019, started out like any other work week. But in the end, it was a day when everything changed forever for so many people. I remember that day like it was yesterday. By about 8 a.m. that morning, I was sitting in an office cubicle in Mandan, North Dakota, where I worked at a software development company named National Information Solutions Cooperative, or NISC. It's one of the biggest employers in the county, and with its wide and sloping parking lot and cluster of modern-looking buildings, it sits on a small hilltop just off of Interstate 94. My title at NISC that morning was Database Conversion Programmer. Back then, I spent my work days with my eyes cemented on a computer monitor, attempting to get older systems to work with newer ones. Out with the old data, in with the new. Then each evening, I'd head home and work on season one of this podcast. That was my life at the time. Database conversions by day, podcast production by night. The NISC campus consists of several office buildings, and on that morning in various departments and working in cubicles scattered on multiple floor levels were several hundred of my colleagues. But you wouldn't have known that by the sound of things. In general, a sense of quiet dominated the work climate there. The floors were mostly carpeted. We all spoke in hushed voices. If not for the occasional ring from a desk phone and the constant chirping of computer keyboards, one might think you were in a library. When I think back on that morning, April 1st, 2019, 
It is this sense of quiet that stands out to me most. That and a distinct look I witnessed in the eyes of my colleagues that day. At around 9 a.m. that morning, seemingly out of nowhere, an uncomfortable sensation took hold of me. It was both palpable and yet indistinct. Somehow, the atmosphere in the building had shifted. As I sat there focused on my computer monitor, I realized that the normal quiet in the office had morphed into something else. It felt suddenly unnerving, as if someone had opened a window somewhere and let something strange inside. I stood up then and scanned the room around me. And sure enough, something was different. Here and there, at various cubicles, were small clusters of NISC employees, many of them standing and huddled up together, whispering and hovering over computer monitors. Something was happening. I quickly learned what it was. Something unsettling had entered the buildings at NISC that morning. It was breaking news, local breaking news, and it came to us across the radio airwaves, on social media and news websites. And with this news came real concern and genuine fear. The news was this. Not that far from our workplace, at a different business in Mandan, four people had been found dead that morning. The initial speculation was that all four had been murdered, and yet, because the news was just breaking, there were no clear answers to what happened. All we knew was that first responders and police had been called to a business named RJR Maintenance and Management right there in Mandan. And when they arrived, they found four people deceased. That business was now said to be sectioned off and the area saturated with squad cars, media, and others. You've heard that cliche about small towns. Everybody knows everybody. Well, that's not what Mandan, North Dakota is like. Not with its population of 25,000 added to another 75,000 living just across the Missouri River in Bismarck. No, everybody does not know everybody in Mandan. But by 2019, after having lived in North Dakota for a few years, I'd learned something. And that knowledge told me exactly what I was witnessing on the faces and in the eyes of my co-workers. You've perhaps heard of something called six degrees of separation, the idea that all people on Earth are separated by at most six social connections. Supposedly, you can pick any person on Earth and be confident that they are somehow a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. Well, you get the picture. You are at most six connections away from everyone, says the theory anyway. In North Dakota, though, you might easily argue that there are at most two degrees, maybe three degrees of separation. It's just the way it is here. Name any North Dakota resident, and if you don't know them personally, one of your friends probably does. This has been proven to me time and time again. It may be big, wide-open country out here on the prairie, but it's also just a small, small world. And so that look, the look I witnessed on the faces of my co-workers... That was more than just the pure shock of horrible local news. It was also a sense of dread. A sinking and sickening sense of dread. It was a type of collective knowing that these deaths would absolutely have personal impact on some of us. If not me, then maybe him or her or maybe you. And there was this too. Many of my co-workers were young parents with kids in school kids at daycare, and they were concerned, rightfully so, even after Mandan police told us and the media that we were likely not in danger. 
A mass murderer remains on the run after four people were found dead inside a property management company. But police say they don't think the public is in danger. That feeling, standing with my colleagues at NISC, our eyes darting around the quiet room at each other, that's a feeling I'll never forget. At some point, Mandan PD announced that they would hold a press conference at 5 p.m. Speculation erupted about what this might mean. Will they release the names of the victims? Are we in danger? Are there more bodies? Did they catch the killer or killers? As soon as I heard about the press conference, I felt compelled to attend myself. But then, just as quickly, I dismissed the idea as nonsense. I was, after all, a conversion database programmer in my cubicle at NISC. Sure, I'd produced one season of a true crime hobby podcast, but no, I was not a real reporter. Certainly the press conference was for those professionals, not for me. So the rest of the afternoon, I stayed where I assumed I belonged, in my tiny cubicle, coding and converting whatever database I was working on that day. Out with the old, in with the new. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. But throughout that afternoon, as the level of agitation and fear in the office rose, my urge to attend the conference eventually overcame me, and I decided to go. I didn't fully understand that decision then, but in hindsight, I think I do. I don't have family in North Dakota, and at that time, I'd been here for less than six years. For those reasons, I think, I was less concerned for myself and more concerned how this event would affect my friends and colleagues and their families. And absolutely shocked as I was by this horrific news, looking back, I think I also felt a slight sense of detachment. Somehow, while my colleagues were living in it, I was standing off to the side watching them, an outsider looking in. All day long, I had eavesdropped on their questions and their fears, and like a spy, I observed the increasingly debilitating hold this event was taking. At that moment, as a semi-detached outsider looking in, perhaps I understood that I was in fact the perfect member of our group to attend the press conference. Because, as it turns out, that's what journalists are, and that's what journalists do. They are, in a way, outsiders looking in, a curious species of bystanders who will willingly detach themselves from chaos and confusion around them in order to ask the right questions and collect the right information. To better understand things themselves, yes, but also on the behalf of others, in the name of the truth and the people's right to know. In that moment, on that afternoon, that was a calling I could hear much clearer and much louder than anything else. And so, just before 5 p.m., the database conversion programmer at NISC grabbed his pen, a notebook, and a microphone and headed to his first ever police press conference. Mic check, mic check, one, two, three, four. Mic check, mic check, one, two. Mic check, mic check. 
I arrived early and took a seat next to all the pros, the local crime reporters, the Associated Press, photographers, and other journalists. I looked on as technicians set up expensive-looking gear, TV cameras, flashy microphones, and tripods. Are you getting levels on Channel 1? Mic check, mic check. Finally, Mandan Police Chief Jason Ziegler entered the room and took his place behind a podium stacked with microphones, including my poor man's digital recorder. At this time, the Mandan Police Department has identified the victims of the homicides at RJR Maintenance and Management in Mandan. The next of kin of the victims have been notified, and I would like to express my condolences to the victims and the families. They are in our prayers The victims have been identified as Robert Faulkner, age 52, Adam Fuhr, age 42, Lois Cobb, age 45, and William Cobb, age 50. Robert Faulkner is an owner of RJR Maintenance and Management. The victims, uh, the other victims were also employees of RJR. Mandan Police Department along with North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigations, has completed the investigation at the crime scene. Evidence collected has been sent for processing and analysis. Investigators have been collecting and reviewing videos from the scene and surrounding areas. If anyone in the area has videos and has not already been contacted by the Mandan Police, please contact us as soon as possible. We're asking for public assistance. If anyone has any information regarding this crime, please contact the Mandan Police Department. You may call our office or use our tip line at mandanpd.com. The investigation so far leads us to believe that this incident was specific to the victims. We do not believe the public at large is in any danger. At this time, we do not have suspects in custody. We ask the public to be vigilant and to report any information they may have. At that point, Police Chief Ziegler opened up the room for questions from the crowd of journalists. He got many questions, and most of them he declined to answer as it was still an ongoing investigation. One reporter asked him to walk us through how the original call for service started and what kind of call it was. It was a medical call for service. Uh, Paramedics and EMS were there first, and then police department came in and did the sweep of the building, and that's all I can tell you on that. Another question for Chief Ziegler was about the impact of the community, his staff, and others. It, it is, it's very unusual for the state of North Dakota. Um, I don't think any community across this great country could ever imagine something like this happening in their backyard. It's extremely hard and difficult um, for everybody, for the first responders, for the families, the victims, uh, people that they've known, uh, you know, it's it's just not something that anybody can really comprehend until you're in the middle of it. Um, so it, it, it's it's very devastating for a community. And RJR has always um, been a reputable company in our area. And the questions continued and continued. When none of these seasoned reporters asked what was on my mind, I figured it would have to be me, the database conversion guy, the hobby podcaster. Chief Ziegler had mentioned video surveillance in his statement. I wanted to know more about that. This was probably on my mind because at the time, working on season one, I was frustrated that some surveillance video in my story had been misplaced or accidentally deleted by law enforcement. 
So I wanted to know if there were security cameras inside RJR where the crimes took place and if the crimes themselves and perhaps the killer or killers had been caught on video. So suddenly, just like that, I guess, I simply deputized myself on the spot. I dubbed thee a journalist. And then I spoke up. There were uh, um, security cameras around the building and inside the building. Have you been able to identify perpetrators, so to speak? Our, our investigators are going through all the video files that we've got. We've got, uh, you know, I can't thank the, the public um, enough. We've got a lot of good leads, a lot of good information. Uh, we've been uh, pulling a lot of video feeds from surrounding businesses and stuff like that. So we're, we're, we're doing our due diligence to try to locate and find more information on the investigative side. Um, so there's a lot of foot. The building where there's security cameras inside the building? There was security cameras inside the building. And was the, the act caught on the I'm not going to let, release that information. And speaking of surveillance video... Police Chief Ziegler reiterated that the police welcomed any help from the community. He wanted any surveillance video or other tips from the area. Any assistance from the public at all was welcomed. At the time, it certainly didn't feel like law enforcement was on the verge of an arrest or that they had much to go on. Anything like videos that they might have, suspicious activity that they could have seen or thought they've seen, uh, we've already got a, a... quite a bit of response of information coming into the police department on possible um, leads and stuff like that. So every lead will be followed up with and we'll make sure that we sign investigators to follow up on those leads. Driving home from the press conference that evening, we had all learned a few things. There was also something that I alone had discovered there. We had all learned the identities of the four victims, Lois Cobb, William Cobb, Adam Fuhrer, and Robert Fackler. I didn't recognize the names myself, and maybe for that reason, I found myself asking more questions. Who were these four people? How did this happen to them? Why did this happen to them? The other thing I learned at that press conference, the thing that I alone had picked up on, was this. That safe and secure cubicle I sat in each workday, where all my out-with-the-old, in-with-the-new programming happened, that was not where I belonged after all. I realized there were people better suited for that than I was, and I was better suited for something else, something like journalism. And once I saw this, I was flabbergasted that somehow I had not understood it all clearly before. Because truth be told, I've always been an outsider looking in. Since early childhood, I've felt like a quiet, self-removed observer, spying from the shadows, a type of voyeur, covertly studying all those fascinating and unpredictable, curious human beings out there. All those who, unlike me, actually were participating in this thing called the human experience, while I stood off to one side, looking on in wonder.
Three days after the murders, on April 4th, an arrest was made in the town of Washburn, North Dakota, in neighboring McLean County. A 44-year-old chiropractor named Chad Isaac was arrested for the murders of Lois Cobb, William Cobb, Robert Fackler, and Adam Fuhrer. We got our man, the cops told us. All around me, a collective exhale, a huge sigh of relief, and a thought that some type of normalcy would return. With the suspect no longer at large, parents could relax a little when they dropped off their kids at school each morning. Finally, it was over. But of course, it wasn't over. For so many people, it wasn't over, and things would never go back to normal. It would never be over for the families and loved ones of these victims. For them, the old normal was gone, stripped away from them, stolen by a killer. And the arrest of that suspect, Chad Isaac of Washburn, that was only the beginning for the justice system. Mandan PD, the state crime lab, county prosecutors, and many others, they knew they had a long, uncertain road ahead of them. Before justice could be served, there were many unknowns to be tackled. Can we establish a motive? Can we prove this in court? Will the jury come back with a guilty verdict? And I think the public understood that this process would take a long time. Assuming answers and explanations would come out someday in a trial, those not directly affected by this crime sort of returned to their jobs and to their normal North Dakota lives. I tried to do that too, return to my cubicle and continue with the out with the old, in with the new programming, but it didn't last much longer. Something had happened to me at that press conference. As it turned out, the old on its way out wasn't data, it was me, the old me. The new on its way in was my future, a future in asking questions and digging for answers. In fact, exactly one year later, on April 1st, 2020, I started my first day of employment at Forum Communications Company as the organization's first full-time podcast producer. As time went on, I certainly never forgot about the RJR homicides. I never stopped wondering what had happened there and why. But I did become focused on other things, new seasons of the podcast. Who killed Billy Wolf near Fargo in 1978? What happened to 15-year-old Barbara Cotton, missing since 1981, from Williston, North Dakota? Then, August of 2021, over two years after the murders, Chad Isaac was put on trial for the RJR murders in Mandan. Today is day one in the trial of a man accused of murdering four people in Mandan. Jury selection began today in the trial of Chad Isaac. He's accused of killing four people at RJR Maintenance and Management and is facing life in prison without parole. I didn't go to the trial myself, but I followed the coverage from afar, and I eagerly awaited answers to many questions, primarily two questions. Did Chad Isaac do it? And if so, what was the motive? Why did he do it? After three weeks, one of those questions was answered. An emotional day in the courtroom as families of the victims in the Mandan quadruple homicide hear a verdict. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn to try the above entitled action, do find the defendant, Chad Trollin Isaac, number one. As to the offense of murder of Lois Cobb as charged in count one of the information, guilty. The jury is finding Chad Isaac guilty of slaughtering four employees inside RJR management on April 1st, 2019. 
WDAY News reporter Grace O'Neill joins us live with a look at the emotions inside the courtroom from family members and co-workers. Grace? That's right, Nick, Becky, you could hear gasps from family members in the court as the judge read guilty for all four counts of murder and one count of robbery. It's been a long wait for these families, some even taking the stand, joining the nearly 70 witnesses. The trial lasted three weeks and the jury took a little more than four hours to come to the guilty verdict. The four victims, Robert Fockler, Adam Fuhrer, William and Lois Cobb, were stabbed and shot to death within 21 minutes. Victims suffered 100 stab wounds collectively. Prosecutors showed evidence that the murders were planned a week in advance, but no motive was ever discovered. When given the chance to speak today, Isaac said the only thing he wants to say is he is not a murderer. I can honestly tell you that I'm not a murderer and that's all I have to say. Chad Isaac may have not been ready to admit anything, but the evidence in this case against him was overwhelming. And I was not alone, assuming that someday Chad Isaac might speak up. He'll speak out eventually, we said. After a few years behind bars, he'll get lonely, and then he'll talk. He'll give us and the families of these victims some kind of answer. But that didn't happen. And now, that can never happen. About a year after the trial, in July of 2022, there was more news. A man convicted of killing four people in Mandan three years ago is dead from self-inflicted injuries. 48-year-old Chad Isaac was pronounced dead at the hospital last night in Bismarck. Troopers were called to the state pen regarding an inmate who had injured himself. Isaac was taken to the hospital where he was pronounced dead about 45 minutes after being found. Chad Isaac hanged himself in jail. He left no note. He left no answers for the victims' families and loved ones. He left no answers for investigators or for the public, for you, or for me. Whatever secrets Chad Isaac may have kept, he took them with him forever. Now it's been four years since the murders in Mandan, and with the passing of time and due to the high-profile trial and heavy media coverage, one might assume that this is one of those stories that is widely known and well understood, a story with nothing left to tell. But I've noticed that whenever I've brought up this subject or asked people what they know about it, most have more questions than answers. And I realized I still have questions too. Questions like how and why and who. Who were Lois Cobb, Bill Cobb, Robert Fockler, and Adam Fuhrer? And who was Chad Isaac? How? How could this happen? And how did law enforcement identify him? How did they catch him? And how did the families, the daughters, sons, mothers, fathers, and friends, how did they survive this ordeal? And where are they now? In the coming episodes of this series, I'll attempt to answer some of these questions and shed light on the full story of what went down at RJR. With exclusive interviews with family members, law enforcement, prosecutors, and others, I won't just walk you through the morning of April 1st, 2019, and the investigation, and arrest, and conviction. I will also introduce you to and bring you up close with those who've been forced to cope with something they could have never imagined. And I'll ask them, with the passage of time, how are things now? How does life go on for them after something like this? 
Does life, in fact, go on, or have their lives been hijacked and held hostage by this horrible crime? And that other lingering and eluding why, the question that won't go away, the one about motive. Why did Chad Isaac do it? He may have taken the full answer to that question with him, but did he leave any clues behind? That and more in future episodes of The Mandan Murders. Still yet to come in future episodes of The Mandan Murders. I had already made the determination that we were going to call the Bureau of Criminal Investigations because the crime scene was so big. And the number of people that were impacted by it, you know, the direct family. Daughters and sons and wives. and Because we knew our parents were one of the first ones that were inside that building every single morning. It's the last thing that you would ever expect. And there's no way to describe the feelings that you get. When I heard that, I just, I dropped, and I was in my kitchen, I dropped to my knees. Where I, like, physically just couldn't get out of my car, because I was just so sad. Sticky notes in his home, in his business, in his vehicle. One said, this is a time of year you do stupid things. My heart is with them. I do think about them every day. You can find them in a song, you can find them in a color, you can find them in the trees or the way the wind just blows. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. To see photographs, documents, video, and more about this season, head over to inforum.com slash mandanmurders. And don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.